You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. It's good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. Glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we're particularly excited that you're here. My name is Tony. I'm the pastor of young adults here at Southcrest. And uh, we're uh, taking a break from the book for the next couple of weeks, which I'll explain in just a moment. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Don't plan on camping out there because we're going we're gonna to be all over. We'll probably lay our eyes on a couple of other passages, and then I'm going to scripture vomit on you today just for the sake of the title of our time and where I'm going. If you can read the screen behind me, um, I recognize that that's a pretty bold statement, maybe even provocative. Uh, And if that is true for you, maybe I've got your attention and then we can honor the Lord together over the next 30 or 35 minutes. If you've got a notebook, or if you maybe you grabbed a note sheet on your way in, I, I felt the need just to give that to you for the sake of, hey, follow along with me, but also jot down. I'm encouraging and I'm asking you to jot down all these scripture references. Um, some of them I will read, some of them uh, I'll just give you the reference, and I'm, I'm asking slash encouraging you to jot those down during our time. Brandon Hayes, like I said a few moments ago, is in the worship center filling in for the next three weeks for uh, Brother David, who is taking his annual kind of month-long sabbatical. So for the next three weeks, we'll have some of the other pastors preaching in here, and then Brandon will be back in here uh, on the very last Sunday in August. And uh, with that being our situation, we decided just to take a break from the book, which meant when Brandon kind of created this schedule for who would be filling in, he told us we could pretty much do anything and go anywhere we wanted because we weren't going to be doing the book. And for some strange reason, Crazy Tony says, let's preach a sermon on hell. Um, I don't know why. I have an idea. So I want you to know that I'm excited and I'm treading cautiously as we think about this topic this morning Um, and as I aim to kind of show you how hell is actually a good thing. Um, Before we go any further, would you pray with me? Father, I know we just sang about the hope and salvation that we have in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. God, we praise you. Help us to see or even connect the glories of how Jesus rescuing us from this eternal state of punishment is unimaginably remarkable. Father, I pray for humility and grace in the next few moments. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as we think about this topic and as we hear from you through your word God, I pray for them and their ears uh, that this time would be helpful, uh, that it wouldn't be confusing. So God, I pray that you give them clarity. Um, And God, above all, as we think about eternal punishment, 
Would you magnify yourself and help us to see your glory? It's my desire, and I pray that you would do that in the next few moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and everyone said, amen. I did ask myself, and maybe some of you are asking yourself the very same question, why preach a sermon on hell? Well, in my preparations this week, I kind of came up and I jotted down six different reasons, and here they are. Number one, it's biblical. The Bible teaches and shows us the grim reality of hell. Number two, it's necessary for the pastor or preacher. If you're going to preach the Bible, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you need to talk about everything. And that is one thing I'm thankful for that God has done and is doing in this church. Brother David does not shy away from tough topics, nor does Brandon Hayes. Matter of fact, when I was talking to Brandon just this week, I recall the sermon he gave not too long ago where he specifically said the wrath of God. So I'm thankful for that. That's good. Number three, it's loving. It is loving for a pastor to preach on coming judgment and the reality of hell if he truly loves the people he gets to shepherd and teach to. Number four, we need to be warned of coming judgment. Judgment is coming. We cannot escape it. Number five, I believe, and this is probably true of most of you in this room, most people want to hear more on this subject. Amen? And lastly, did I say five or six? I had five and I added one last night pretty late. Number six, most people have a wrong view of God. And I'm not just talking about unbelievers. I believe that there are unfortunately Christians in this room who don't have a complete, correct biblical view of God, which in turn leads to a wrong view of hell. Does that make sense? Now here's what I mean. For people to accuse God of being so harsh or so unloving by sending people to hell is actually a belittlement of God's holiness and their own sin. When we think that way, when we think God is so crazy and unloving for punishing people, we are minimizing our sin and its offense to a holy God. You see, sin is infinitely wrong because it offends an infinitely holy God. So it's not just the degree of the sin that you've committed, if if it's this tiny or this big. It's not about that. You all know just as much as I do. God sees sin in in a relative sense all the same. You've committed one, that's it. So it's not just the degree of sin that's wrong, it's who it offends and who it dishonors. Therefore, it is right for me and for us to think about God judging us, knowing that we deserve punishment, which should cause us to be in awe of him as we wonder why we're not all dead right now. Purely because of God's grace and mercy. Amen? I didn't mean to come out the gates swinging, but maybe I kind of did. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher and author, and he said this, every time you draw your breath in, you suck in mercy. Or I think it would be helpful for us to hear the words of my good, I wish I could say good friend, but my dear brother, Vody Bauckham Jr., who's a pastor and author, and he said this, Do you know that it was his mercy that woke you up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night? 
couple of precursors before we get any further. I've thought about this time. I've been excited and nervous. Not just nervous for the sake of preaching, but nervous for knowing this is just a tough topic because the bottom line is humans don't like this. We don't like to be punished. We don't like the idea of eternal punishment, being separated from God, but unfortunately, it is a reality. Why would anyone decide to preach on hell? Well, like I said, if they love the Bible, if they love God, they love his word, and they love his people, then they'll talk about it. How does one handle such a topic? I think that's a pretty big question, and uh, maybe several answers you could give. So I do want you to know, among other things, that my aim this morning is to be helpful and loving. Uh, I also want you to know that what I'm going to do when I said earlier, when I said that reference on scripture vomit, because I still kind of feel like somewhat of a novice, I'm just being transparent on this topic. Now, God has been gracious to me in helping shape my view and belief about hell as I've gone through ministry and life over the last 15 years or so, as I've gone through institutions of schooling and re, uh, reading books and hearing sermons and hearing different pastors comment on the topic of hell. Through all that, God has shaped what I believe about hell. And that's what I wanna share with you this morning. And as I do that, what I wanna do is lean heavily into scripture, because the pastor knows that any authority we have comes directly from scripture. Cole knows that, I know that, Brandon knows that, Brother David, every pastor here knows that. I'm also going to pull in some insight and thoughts from other theologians and scholars throughout the years who I've loved and I've appreciated and I just wanna share, use their sentiment and their thoughts to help kind of build this case for God being glorified in the punishment of sinners. I also want you to know, dear brother and sister, that I need the sermon just as much as you do. So remember that as we go through this, that in, in some weird way I'm preaching to myself. Most importantly, I want us to glorify Christ Jesus as we think about his rescuing power in the gospel. Amen? Y'all ready? I can stop if you want. We'll pray and we'll, we'll bring the team back up and we can end this. In dealing with such a difficult topic as eternal punishment, one of the beliefs that I hold to is actually what motivated me to decide to use this time that was given to me by the Lord and Brandon Hayes to fill this platform and to talk about hell. And the belief that I have is this. I think Christians know hell is a real place. Would you put your hand up if you know it is a real place? Okay, good. I also believe Christians believe that hell exists. Would you put your hand up if that's you? And it's okay if you don't. Here's the problem. I also believe that we live as if hell does not exist. And this is what I've come to believe and how I've tried to process this and thinking this is how Satan wins and rules over us each day. He deceives us into thinking that hell is not a big deal and for people to spend an eternity there is not terrifying. Brother and sister, if we truly believe what the Bible says about hell, I think our spiritual lives would look radically differently. And I'm preaching to myself again. So eternal punishment how hell reflects the glory of God. Knowing it's a bold statement, I had to ask myself this question. If I'm presenting that idea, I have to ask myself the right question. How does hell reflect the glory of God? How does hell reflect the glory of God? So I came up with a premise to the sermon, started thinking about how this was going to look and the direction I wanted to go. And I figure out the right questions to ask. 
And now for the remainder of our time, I'd like to kind of try and show you that. So before we really dig in, look at the top of your notes if you grabbed one. If you have a journal, I encourage you to write this down as well. It's helpful for the sake of understanding and clarity for me to define the two words that are in this title and deal heavily with where we're going this morning. So for the sake of clarity, I want to define what I mean when I think about and when I say hell from this platform this morning. So hell is, by definition, you can look in uh, a dictionary, uh, where I referred to several times this week was systematic theology books, where it talks extensively about hell. And a simple definition is this, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, or rather, or, uh, in other words, it's eternal con- conscious punishment for those who reject Christ. It's extremely important to know this because of the various different views that exist in our world today about hell. Some say that hell is figurative, that it's, it's some of you, I heard this week as I was researching and looking at videos, people believe that hell exists on earth. There are very dis, uh, degrees and, and experiences of hell, but to think about an eternal state, that, uh, that can't be true. Others think that it's not everlasting that you will eventually perish and cease to exist after some time in hell. Or there's also the belief that you'll be in hell for a period of time, but at some point, you will have another chance to repent of your sin and be welcomed into heaven. These are just a few that exist in the world that you live in and probably are believed by people you know and love. Hell is indeed a real place. The Bible describes it. Jesus spoke of it more than he did heaven. Which should tell us something. If he spoke more about this and he did this, what is he really wanting to do? He cares more about this. Maybe he wanted to warn us of coming judgment. Now, I wish I could list every scripture in the Bible that talks about hell uh, with you this morning, but I realize we'd be here till 1130 trying to be concise. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list a bunch. I'll read a few. I would, uh, the ones that I don't read, I'll reference. I would just encourage you to jot down. And I, I hope, pray, maybe you'll just read it at some point this week. Uh, maybe even those of you struggling with a quiet time, I'm helping you out. Go and read these scriptures this week. Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 30. Many of you probably know that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man cannot give up his wealth for the sake of Jesus. Lazarus goes into paradise. Rich man gets sent into eternal punishment. And you read the narrative there directly from the words, excuse me, the words that came directly from the mouth of Jesus, where Lazarus came up and said, excuse me, rich man came up and said, oh, would you ask Lazarus to go and put a drop of water on her finger that I might be quenched? For I'm tormented in this fire. Revelation chapter 21 Verse eight, the wicked are thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Revelation 14, 10 and 11 talks about those who will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The smoke 
goes up forever and ever. Jesus was not the only person in the New Testament or one of the New Testament authors that talked about hell. Paul did this as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now, these are just a few of many passages in Scripture that talk about hell. But I also thought this. If you were to survey the words that are used in Scripture to describe or picture hell, you would see words such as agony, anguish, abandonment, banishment, curse, crying, darkness, destruction, distress, fire, fiery furnace, teeth grinding, guilt, hopelessness, loneliness, pain, prison, punishment, no rest, ruin, separation, smoke, sulfur, torment, trouble, and weeping just to list a few. John MacArthur, a pastor of Grace Community Church in California, in one of, one of his sermons on hell, <laughs> referenced Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse 10. I'd encourage you to write it down. He believes that this is one of the most interesting passages that speaks of hell for this reason. This is what it says. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. To which John MacArthur replied and said, whoa, sounds like eternal boredom. And I would agree. Young people who occasionally go throughout your days or weeks and you're complaining of boredom, you have no idea. You're not bored, you're being lazy. This is boredom. So that's hell. What do I mean by glory? Glory is one of those words we, get, we throw around a lot. Uh, I, for the longest time, I've even wondered, man, this is a cool word. I'd, I'd see it in the Bible, and I know it's a part of the Christian life. What does it mean? Well, thankfully, God's wisdom and providence, I was able to figure this out uh, to some degree. And what I want to share with you is this. When we think about glory, and specifically even what I mean this morning, John Piper explains it this way. Glory is simply the radiance of God's holiness. You know what I mean or what comes to mind when I say the radiance of God's holiness? It's the outstreaming of his infinite value. It's God's character on display for all to see. That is God's glory. One commentator said, it is the invisible qualities of God made visible or knowable. So we know that God is holy and he is so many things in and of himself. He is not... Those characteristics are not just what he does or how he acts. It is literally who he is. He can't be anything else because he is those things. When we think about love and mercy and grace and kindness and patience, that is God. And when we see that on display, that's glory. In short, when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the manifestation of God's perfect qualities. So when God creates something, guess what? He gets glory. When God sets his love upon something or someone, guess what? He gets glory. When God extends grace and mercy to people like us, he gets glory. And when God punishes those who are unrighteous, he gets glory. Isaiah chapter six, verse three. Isaiah six, verse three says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, when God puts his holiness on display for all to see again, that is God's glory. Now with all that before us, if you would look at Genesis chapter one, verse one, and I'm wondering if some of you are going, how on earth does this tie into God's eternal punishment? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop right there. There's something quite significant here that we're, honestly, we're really not specifically told about. What we are told is this is the beginning of time, space, and matter. Do you all see it? In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, the expanse, space, and the earth, matter. But I think there are people in this room, as have I, have wondered, or maybe we've misunderstood and we see this as, oh, this is the beginning of God. No. What do we know about God? He is what? Eternal. What does that mean? He has no beginning or end. It's, it's, it's always. It's, he's there. So then the question that comes to my mind is this. What happened before Genesis 1-1? Has anyone ever wondered that? Something happened before Genesis 1-1. What we don't see in scripture, specifically here in Genesis, but is affirmed throughout other passages in scripture is what is known as the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. It's what scholars and theologians have referred to that took place in eternity past before God created anything. It's the premise that God, before he created anything, entered into an contractual agreement with Jesus the Son and the Spirit. Before he created anything, he entered into an agreement to redeem and rescue a select group of people throughout the entire scope of human history. And how does this work? Well, they decided upon this. Jesus would agree to lower himself and come to earth in human form and die for the sins of man. And the Spirit of God agreed in this covenant to work in those who will believe in Jesus by bringing them ultimately into the point of consummation, either in their death or when Jesus returns. Does that make sense? I know some of you are like, I'm sorry. But this plays into what I want you to see and where I'm going this morning. Now, This covenant, this covenant of redemption is a lot like the word Trinity. How many of you believe in the Trinity? Now, is the word Trinity in scripture? No, but the concept is there, is it not? Even in Genesis chapter one, all three members of the Trinity are present. If you you got a moment, you can skim and read it. It's there. So the covenant of redemption is a lot like the Trinity. The words aren't directly or specifically used in scripture, but the concepts are there. The covenant of eternal redemption is not verbally written out, but again, the concept there, and I will show you one in just a moment. So what I'd like to do briefly, so we're kind of trucking along here, is show you four things, and this is on the first page of your notes, and what, I came up with these things in an effort to help us understand God's plan in a nutshell, okay? But what I hope you won't miss is how these four things are in essence a picture of the Bible, okay? By the way, the Bible tells one story. 
How many of you know that? Some of you are like, hey, on Tony, you're a little bit of a loony right now. I don't even know how you're a pastor because the Bible is made up of 66 books that contain hundreds of stories. You're absolutely correct, but they all tell one story. The Bible is made up of different books written by many different human authors who were all inspired by one divine author, which is very needed for us to be reminded of and know and believe in this day and age. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. Amen? It's about the one true God of the universe who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise forever. So dear friends, let's be careful not to take stories like David and Goliath and make them about us. You are not David conquering your fears or your sin. David is a type of Jesus. The stone I've liked to see as the cross. Goliath is sin and death. Jesus conquers sin and death through the cross. The Bible's not about us. It's about God. It's his book. It's his revelation to us. Now, why do I begin this way? Why do I explain this to you? Thinking about the covenant of redemption in the Bible, because it leads me to our first point, the first thing I want you to see. Number one, in this idea of thinking about punishment, God's glory, and the Bible, number one, I want you to see his plan. His plan. I've already kind of talked about that when I referred to the covenant of redemption. Like before God created anything, he had a plan with a purpose, and he was going to fulfill it. He was going to see it out. Now, what's his plan? I'm glad you asked. To display his glory. Turn to John chapter 17. To display his glory. Look at John 17 for just a moment. This is Jesus praying in the garden. Literally days uh, ahead of his crucifixion. He knew what was coming. He was preparing for it. And we are given this amazing moment in history. And it's recorded for us. And I want you to see the very beginning of Jesus' prayer. By, by the way, this prayer, I got to study it. And I'm by no means claiming to say that I figured it out or know it, but I studied it and taught it over two or three sessions. And it, it's still, when I skim over it or read it, still excites me and blows my mind. But look at verses one through five, specifically five. But as we read one through four, I hope you'll notice a word. Okay. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said this, father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse four, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And I look at verse five. And now father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Is there a word that kind of leaps off the page that is repeated several times? Glorify. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Better yet. Why did Jesus die for you?
95% of you are probably thinking, because he loves me. And that's not wrong, but I don't believe it's 100% true. Because before God's love for you, he cares about his glory. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To glorify his father. What motivated him and pushed him? His love. So let's not lose sight. I learned that and I had to wrestle with that myself. So I don't want to lose sight of God's love because it is unfathomable. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Like, why me? I don't know. Above all that, Jesus cared about God's glory. Have you ever been asked a question by someone, whether it was a believer or a non-believer, why did God fill in the blank? Or why does God fill in the blank? Have you ever been asked a question like that? And sometimes you're just like, yeah, I don't know. Can I give you an answer? 99.867.25% of the time. The answer is always emphatically for his own glory. Why does God do anything for his own glory? Dear friends, it's not a cop out. You're not avoiding the answer to the question. It's the truth. The covenant of redemption, which happened in eternity past, is not only the basis for what I'm trying to present to you this morning. It's the basis for why God does anything to glorify himself. In this agreement, God ordains a plan to display his glory by creating, allowing us to fall, rescuing those who receive his grace through Christ Jesus by faith, and then punishing those who reject his love. Notice Isaiah 48, if you jot that down. Isaiah 48, verse nine. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Why is God patient towards you? For the sake of his name, his glory. Paul said it in Romans chapter two, verse four. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you towards repentance? God is patient with us every day because he can look to the work that Jesus did on the cross, knowing that it was sufficient, it satisfied his wrath, and he's continually using that through the power of the Holy Spirit to conform you in his image of the Son, but also for those who have not heard or believed, he's patient. He desires for them to come to him. So that's God's plan, to display his glory. Number two, I want you to see our predicament. We're in a whole heap of trouble. And what I mean by that is sin and rebellion. Sin and rebellion. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26, Paul says, in essence, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, but he also says we are justified by grace, by Christ's death as a propitiation, meaning God stepped down and took our place on the cross and that satisfied God's wrath and now God can show us grace and mercy. And he did all of this because of his righteousness. Now this idea of sin and rebellion actually takes us back to Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve believed a lie about God when they were tempted in the garden by Satan. They fell into sin, thus bringing a curse upon the entire created order. By the way, dear brothers and sisters, I don't know if this excites you, but not only do we get perfect bodies and we live in eternity in the presence of God without sin, we will be living in a restored, created place, which is great. Like, I don't know if any of you get excited or anxious about natural disasters or tornadoes or hurricanes. I don't believe those are gonna happen. I could be wrong. 
I don't believe they're gonna happen. I think all of that plays into the fact that there is a curse over the created order and we are living in a broken, fallen state of God's creation until Jesus comes back to restore it. That's heaven. When he comes back, that's heaven. He's bringing it into fruition. Now, Paul talks about this sin in Romans chapter five. Turn over there. A couple of books over, Romans chapter five. I want you to see this connection. This is important because it is very easy for people to think, yeah, Adam and Eve lived thousands of years ago. Why do they have anything to do with me? Because you descended from Adam. Therefore, you are in the line of sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter five. Look at verse 12 or jot it down. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul goes on in the verses that follow that to talk about the positive. So the negative is Adam sinned, we're all in sin. The positive, Jesus came and lived a perfect life. If we believe and trust and put our faith in him, we get life. It's that simple. Sin came in through one man, life came in through another. So that's our predicament. But it gets a little better. Number three, I want you to see his proposition His proposition, I really thought about putting the word proposal here, but I thought about it and I was like, proposal doesn't really communicate what I think is going on and I don't don't think it really communicates what, what needs to be understood here. I think proposition is a better word because basically a proposition is something set into a place that might incur judgment, just depending on the situation. So I believe God has given us a proposition in light of our fallen state which tells us this, God will judge and judgment leads to eternal life or eternal death. It's one or the other. Because we are all under the curse of sin, we all deserve judgment. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, if you jot that down, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, the author of Hebrews says, and just as, is at, excuse me, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. The Bible is explicitly clear. Who will be judged? Everyone. Christians too. Everyone will be judged. No one can escape this reality. Everyone will stand before God and be held accountable for what they did on this earth according to his revelation about himself. Basically, it's another way to say everyone will be judged according to what they did with Jesus. That's the exhortation. Uh, If you're watching online, if you're in this room, unbeliever, not sure where you're at in the spiritual journey, what have you done with Jesus? Have you believed in him? Do you believe he is the son of God? If you put your faith and trust in him, because the Bible says if you do, you get eternal life. Now the Bible also offers us two realities in light of this judgment. John chapter three, everyone knows 16, but what about 17 and 18? Well, note verse 18. 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is already condemned and deserves punishment. John chapter three, verse 36, reiterates the same idea. Whoever believes gets eternal life. Whoever does not shall not see life. So we've seen his plan, our predicament, his proposition, and then fourthly, Again, we're talking about the scope and the narrative of scripture here, his provision, his 
provision. And what I mean by that, dear friends, salvation and redemption. God provides salvation and redemption. Which, in essence, if you're listening to me and you're tracking with me, I'm saying you can't do it by yourself. I don't care how hard you try, how many times you come to church, how much money you gave. That doesn't get you into heaven. You know what else is sad when we're thinking about the grim reality of hell and eternal punishment? Hell will be filled with good people. People who went to church, who tried hard, who didn't cuss, maybe only had premarital sex once, whatever. None of those things make someone a Christian. Only Jesus can. So God provides salvation and redemption. God offers us forgiveness in the giving of his one and only son, John 3, 16 and 17. Romans chapter five, verse eight. Wages of sin is death. We know at the right time Christ came for us and he died in our place. He provides us forgiveness and salvation and he redeems us. It's also important for us to know this. When Jesus declared that he was sent into the world as a lamb to be slaughtered for the sins of the world, know this, dear friend, I reference this at the beginning of our time. When he's made that statement, his mission was not given to him when he was born in the manger. Or you can even go further to thinking down the road in his ministry when he was baptized. That's not when his mission was given to him. His mission was given to him before the foundation of the earth was laid in eternity past. R.C. Sproul, the late great R.C. Sproul, passed away in 2017. Great man of God, great preacher, loves the word, said this about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption was a transaction that involved both obligation and reward. And that's usually what happens in an agreement, right? When you enter an agreement with someone, whether it's a contract or financial, whatever it is, there are two parties and they agree upon something and someone has an obligation and, and then someone gets a reward. The same thing happened in the covenant of redemption. The son entered into a sacred agreement with the father. The son submitted himself to the obligations of that covenantal agreement. And an obligation was likewise assumed by the father. And here's what I mean. If Jesus would fulfill his end of the bargain, God the father would fulfill his. And he would give his son a reward for doing the work of redemption. So in God's infinite wisdom, in an effort to display his glory, again, that's all he cares about, and that's a good thing for us, amen? Some of you may be like, hold on, Tony, that, that might be a new concept. I don't know if I can wrap my mind around it. God caring about his glory is good. If he didn't or if he was willing to share it, he wouldn't be a God who would be worthy to be worshiped. God caring about his glory is good for us. We get to partake in this. So in his infinite wisdom, in an effort to display his glory, and to show his infinite worth, God creates, he permits his image bearers to fall into sin, Genesis 1:27. the word used there, image bearers. Does anyone know what that means? Image bearers, we're created in, in, in God's image. It simply means we're created to reflect who he is. God wants us to show the world his glory. But most remarkably, above all that, God sends his son into the world to pay the penalty, penalty for sin that he didn't deserve. So there's God's plan, our predicament, his proposition, and his provision. Now, 
Um, some of you may be wondering, Tony, this, this sounds kind of cool. I'm, I'm still kind of tracking with you, but you really haven't told me how hell glorifies God. <sighs> Let me do that really quick, and then we'll be done. Five things on the other side of your note sheet, if you have it. I'm going to go through them quick. And these are things I jotted down as I've immersed myself in this, this doctrine, into this, this theology, this understanding, and tried to make sense of it. The existence of hell glorifies the God of the Bible in many ways, but I've listed five here for you. And please know that there are probably more. These five are not the be all and end all. This is just what I could come up with. I jotted down on a piece of paper this week. But I want you to know this. As I was writing these down, I had another interesting thought. Stay with me on this. Humans tend to focus on the question, why would God punish people for all of eternity? There are probably people in this room who have wondered that, or maybe you've been asked that. Why would God do that? Instead of asking the more correct or biblical question of, why does God save anyone at all? You see, friends, in our limited, finite minds, we cannot fully understand all of God's ways and his plans. When it comes to judgment and punishment, we tend to usually, we hone in on what we can see. Do y'all know what I mean? Like when we think about judgment and punishment, we're looking at it at surface level. Like all we think of, oh gosh, that's bad. No one should get that. I don't deserve that. I don't want that. But what I was reminded of as I thought about these things this week is it's often what we don't see underneath the surface that is actually the truth. Does that make sense? This is how God has worked this in me and my mind as I've thought about this. Because I like you, I'm not saying I'm not like you. Judgment and punishment, even Friday morning as I was writing and preparing, I wrestled with this. Part of me was about to chicken out and say, I'm not doing this. I'm just gonna pull a sermon from archives that I did four years ago because I don't wanna talk about hell. I wrestled with this. What we don't see often underneath the service is actually what God is doing and the truth. So here, here we go. Here's what I mean. Number one, or letter A, the existence of hell punishes sin justly. Punishes sin justly. God will punish those who reject the free gift of salvation and he will reward those who have received it. There will not be a gray area specifically on that day when the Lord returns. It will be very clear who's been redeemed and who hasn't. Charles Spurgeon once said this, speaking about sin and punishment and eternal judgment, said this about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, if his first coming does not give you eternal life, his second coming will not. If you do not hide in his wounds when he comes as your savior, there will be no hiding place for you when he comes as your judge. Christ came into the world first as a lamb to be slaughtered, the savior. When he returns, he's coming as a judge. There will be no second chance. And he will punish those accordingly, according to his righteous standards. Secondly, the existence of hell proves God's righteous justice. It proves God's righteous justice. Paul said in Romans chapter two, verses two through five, he said this, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is actually, for me as a Christian, when I'm sharing Jesus with people and I'm trying to get them into the family of God, this is like incredibly weight lifting. People's eternal futures are not up to me, but I get to be a part of it. I get to tell them. And I don't have to leave that conversation knowing, oh man, yes, we can be sad. We should be sad. We should be caring for people. And we should be praying them into heaven. But it's not up to us. God will judge and God will save who he pleases. The third thing, the existence of hell reveals the truth about God. The existence of hell reveals the truth about God. Now, dear friends, I ask this question. What is true about God? Well, simply this. He is holy. There's none like him. You know what the greatest problem humans have? In, in existence, the greatest human dilemma is this. God is holy, you're not. God will stay true to his promises and his word and he will reward Jesus with the ones he promised him in eternity past. Mark Ballinger, who was a former pastor, a blogger, he writes articles on a website. Uh, he was even a missionary at some time. He said this, If God is for people first rather than his glory, then hell would make no sense. Y'all follow me? This is a misconception. Like we need to be careful and sometimes how we say this. God is for us. He is for his people. He loves those people that Jesus has redeemed. Those are his people. Those are the people he's for. Maybe not necessarily for sinners. But if God cared about people first rather than his glory, then hell would make no sense. Hell is proof that all of existence is about God and not about humans. If God was more concerned with saving humans and with a display of his glory, then hell would really only be for Satan and his demons. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot. Sorry. It's a big topic. The fact that a place called hell exists reveals not only that God exists, but the truth about him. He is righteous, he is holy, and he will be just. He will not allow sin into his presence because he is that awesome. Fourth, letter D, the existence of hell gives unrepentant sinners exactly what they want. Now, here's why I thought of this. Getting close to wrapping up. Too often we think about, "Mm, uh, eternal punishment in hell, I don't wanna go there. Maybe if I live a good life, I'll escape it but we don't think about the real reality of heaven and hell. Here's what I mean. I was reminded of something as I listened to to some commentary this week on this subject. And it said this, no one will ever be in hell who does not deserve to be there. There won't be any mistakes. God created hell as an eternal place for people to have what they really want. And you know what they want? A place without God. I heard a sermon in 2016 by a a brother I love. His name is Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor and an author. But in his sermon, he quoted J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. 
and I loved it. This quote has stuck with me for the last five years, and now I'm kind of fanboying out because I get to share it with some people that I love. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle says this, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do there? What joy would you feel? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? The truth is this, their pleasures are not your pleasures because you've been redeemed. You are holy and righteous through the blood of Christ. They are not. What they love, you do not love. How crazy is it for us to think that if you have no interest in God here on earth, why would you want to spend all of eternity with him? Weird kind of crazy way I thought about uh, illustrating that is this. It would almost be like taking someone who loves and invested all of their life into being a Star Trek fan. Like they, they just love it. They're all in, they're committed. And if you take them and send them to a Star Wars convention for all of eternity, it doesn't make sense. What would they do there? What would sinners do in heaven? See how this is making sense? God's creating a place to give sinners what they want, and he's creating a place for us to spend eternity in his presence. And I can't wait. Last thing. I want to share this with you and be practical. The, The existence of hell magnifies his greatness through the absence of his presence. This was something I read on Mark Ballinger's website uh, this week as I was reading and trying to gather some thoughts. Here's what I mean by that. Y'all ever heard the phrase, and if you're married, you are, and everyone's heard this, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah? Married couples in the room, you can track with me. I know this is true. Anytime I travel, if I'm out of town, Uh, A few weeks ago, I had to go be in a wedding in Florida. Anytime I'm away from my family, I miss them. More importantly, anytime I'm away from my wife, I miss her. I long for her. I long to be back with her, to enjoy what God has given me in this covenant of marriage, to enjoy her presence, to love her, to cherish her, to be with her, to make her feel special, to know that she's a gift given to me by God. I just, I miss that. And when I don't have it, something's missing. Amen? Amen. I know sometimes married couples are like, I don't know, I need a break from my spouse. It's not entirely true right now, but it could be. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. In the same sense, the fact that hell is a place where God will not be is actually the most terrifying part about hell. It's not the descriptions that I read to you earlier. It's not always what the Bible says, although those are true. The worst part about hell is God is not there. The lack of God's presence will make those in hell wish that they could be in his presence for all of eternity. Maybe I even wondered this. I kind of see this in the story in uh, Luke where rich man and Lazarus. Maybe it would maybe even make them wish that they would have received God's grace and forgiveness while they were here on earth. And they could begin to experience his love and forgiveness. Here's how I want to close begin to wrap this up. There's one thing that the Bible is distinctively clear on, and it's this. This should give us comfort. We will not raise our fists in the air with concerns and objections to God when we get there. God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you save them? On and on and on. 
We won't question God or wonder where certain people are. I believe that to be true because we'll be too caught up in singing his praises and declaring his worth. Revelation 15, verses three and four says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the mighty, almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here's the invitation. Again, to the two people in the room, to the Christian, my hope, my aim in this was to show you, maybe even change your perspective a little bit on how God operates, who he is, and what uh, judgment means, and what it looks like. But primarily for the Christian, my hope in this was to push us to radical obedience maybe even a radical lifestyle where we can't help but share Jesus with people around us because we know what the Bible says about hell. I'm hoping and praying that for us as a church, that we would really begin loving the lost with a way that, in the same way that Jesus did, knowing that they will spend an eternity somewhere. To the unbeliever in the room, whether you're, if you're a visitor or if you're watching online and this is new to you, uh, you're trying church out, I don't, I don't know. My goal this morning was not to scare you out of hell. Although it, all, it sounds like I could with everything I'd listed and everything I talked about. But I want you to know if we resort to scaring people out of hell, then they've missed and we've missed the bigger picture because the alternative to hell is Jesus and the gospel and enjoying him forever. So it's not just escaping hell and punishment, it's getting a reward. It's getting to be with the one who made you. So don't be scared out of hell for the sake of, I don't wanna go there. I'm praying God is working in your heart to where you're saying, missed it. I've messed up and I can't fix it by myself, but Jesus can. And I want him. That's my hope and prayer for you. My hope for us all together again, is that we would begin living like hell is real, that we would be concerned with people's eternal destinies on a daily basis. And that our love for others would move us towards action. Stephen Lawson um, has a ministry out of Dallas. I think he pastors a church there. He said this, Live with urgency. Time is fleeting. Death is coming. Christ is returning. Judgment is looming and eternity is approaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a tough subject to wrestle with. I pray that you did something far beyond I could ever hope or dream this morning for the sake of your glory. God, help us to be people that love others that will get over ourselves and get over our, our, our insecurities and how weird it feels to talk to someone about Jesus. Help us to understand and grasp the reality of eternal punishment. Lord, I pray that even in my effort to explain this understanding of how hell glorifies you, I pray that that would be helpful to the one who even wrestles or struggles with that idea, but also, Lord, that they would be 
focused and determined and passionate about your glory as we share Jesus with others. Help us, Lord, please. The invitation, if you desire to come up, there's people up front to talk with you. If you've got someone you want to lay at the altar that you want to pray for them, that you know you need to share Jesus with, you come and do that. And if, you're, if there's someone in the room who has not believed in the gospel and trusted in Jesus yet, you can do that this morning. Would you do all these things according to your will, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 